Hello, and welcome to And All Shall Be Well. My name is Megan Rohr, and I am your host. We are in part two of a three-part series, but don't worry if you haven't listened to the first one. I think you'll still appreciate this one. Cynthia is someone who works with the homeless in San Francisco and has worked with the homeless on a federal level here in the United States, and someone who talks about what it is like to be a second-generation immigrant from Southern Asia. Her stories are relatable, funny, and come with the kind of charm that I think happens because she and I are people who have been uh, working kind of in relationship with each other, trying to decrease bias in the San Francisco homelessness system. And because she is just generally a warm and open person. You will notice in her conversations that she is going to be the first to kind of let you know that she is a work in progress. Uh, but my experience of Cynthia is that she is someone who is holding her head up high in, in fancy rooms and in the community spaces that she inhabits with others. I hope you enjoy these conversations. And if you like it, maybe you'll stick around for the other conversations this week. My name is Cynthia Nagendra. Also, it's pronounced Nagendra, but I have been using both lately. But my name is Cynthia Nagendra slash Nagendra. And I use she, her pronouns. And I am talking from San Francisco. I am a cisgender woman who is the daughter of immigrants, of Sri Lankan immigrants. The way I describe myself is just in general, I work in homelessness and housing justice. That's the field that I've been working in for most of my life, almost more than 15, something 15 to 20 years. I grew up in a, in a Hindu household, immigrants whose worldview is, I would say, utterly different from the dominant worldview of the mainstream culture of the United States. I'm a dark-skinned woman. I think that that is something that I have thought about more as a salient part of my experience because we do have a, a, a colorist world that we live in. I would describe myself as, as straight and as also as someone who is doesn't really conform to the model of the kind of typical South Asian American. Not that there is one typical South Asian American, but there is a sort of construct of a model minority that I don't feel particularly aligned to, even in my own cultural. I'm second generation. My parents came over here in one of the early waves um, of South Asian immigration back in the 70s. And that has more to do with the post-colonial conflict in Sri Lanka than anything else. And I think like the practices of wellness are not going to look like Gwyneth Paltrow might call wellness. Or I don't go to the gym. I don't, I'm not like a, a hiker. When I came to, I'm, I'm a city girl from Northeast Jersey and Staten Island. And I came to California. I was like, why is everyone hiking? And why is everyone outdoors? I'm never going to fit in here. But then I just started to realize that it's actually really pretty here. And you could just sit outside and sit in Golden Gate Park and get a lot out of like whatever those phytochemicals are that come from trees. And like, the working in this field takes so much emotional toll. Living in this world takes a lot of emotional toll. I have so much privilege to like, be able to do, to even live in California. And so I've had to develop this better like practices and tools that I think that work for me. And I think feeling like I'm not alone in what I do has been, I think, probably the primary thing. I think 
feeling in particular, like that I am in the company of people that I really admire, that make me laugh, that make me see myself in ways that maybe some people are making me feel like I'm not good enough or I'm not the right color skin or I'm not the right, whatever the things are, even within my own community that I'm not a doctor or I'm not doing science. I'm not doing some of the typical things. I'm even, I'm a bit of an outcast in my own society, in my, my own culture, but having a network of close friends in particular people who are understand like a marginalized experience, queer folk, women, particularly women of color in the last few years have been my saviors. See, I feel like they've saved my life because they not only can connect to me and understand my experience in some ways, but it helps me not judge myself and it makes me feel like, okay, there's a lot of amazing people that are doing the thing that I do or not, even if they don't have, even not working in our field, but like that are, the world is mostly good. I like working in homelessness and housing because there's more good people. There's more caring people. There's more loving people than not. And it helps remind me of that. When I was in law school and I was doing like some stints in like corporate firms, I realized yeah, I could pay off my law school loans really fast this way, but I would be just really demoralized because I don't, it's hard. I'm not saying that lawyers aren't, can't be good people, but when you're in a corporate space and you're like, bottom line is about making money, you, you're not, you're going to sacrifice being good to each other at places that I wouldn't want to do that. So in the ways that you practice, I think the ways that you practice this should come into some kind of alignment with who you are, how you love yourself, loving and valuing yourself and giving yourself what you need to serve, not just to survive, but to thrive. And I think it takes time to learn what those things are and not be ashamed of them. I used to be very ashamed that I don't hike and I don't go to the gym and I'm not eating the way I should be eating. But now I'm like, okay, I love seeing music. I'm going to go back to seeing like concerts and that makes me happy. Like I just went to Lauren Hill and it made my year. I love East Coast hip hop. I love, like, and I figured out hiking can be walking. And I started looking at like mommy blogs that you can take like little kid hikes or like old people hikes and doing those instead of like the hiking, like, usually like written by these white guys who say something's easy and it's not. And I get really angry when I go on <laughs> But I found this like Tennessee Valley trail hike in Marin and it's just a walk. And it makes me, I realize being outside makes me happy and I don't have to feel bad about myself because I don't know how to hike. <laughs> so I think the trick is to know yourself. That takes some time and, and not feel ashamed of the things that make you happy. I think too, there's this, well, it's, we can look at it from the data because we're data nerdy people, but I think we might also have lived experiences of this, but let's pretend it's the data. So we're not talking about our own lives. But like, you know that when you're one of only a few people in your field or one of only a few people in your workspace, that it takes a toll. Even if you have fancy legal training, people might not treat you like you have wisdom or people might want you to be more paperwork oriented than people oriented. And we know statistically that people who have gender that is not anything other than biologically born male often in a workplace get treated as if they don't have the same wisdom or the same sort of experience. And so there is a way in which you be also trained that our own training isn't good enough. Our, our, however hard we work, we're not far enough down the road to deserve whatever titles yes. we might get. And so it's, I feel like there's this way in which we almost have to not just do the wellness that's, I don't know, whatever some exercise regime is going to say it has to be but also the like the wellness of i put on lotion when it gets dry out 
because my skin needs lotion and whatever the equivalent of putting on lotion when it's dry out is for being in work fields or cities or spaces where there aren't many others with the same experience. We just need to start talking out loud that we all have to do that to normalize it enough that when the next person that's bodied like us comes into our field, they know, oh yeah, public comments hard for everybody. And it's especially hard if the narratives we've had leading up to it, whether it's our own way of thinking about ourselves or it's just what we hear a lot, like that we just need to be people who are seeking the wellness that's also going to remind us in a non-selfish, still we're humble people way, we're good enough, we're smart enough, and gold darn it, people like us, right? <laughs> like that old <laughs> SNL sketch. Nice call that. But I just, I think what you're naming is something that's, much more common than people speak about. And I think it's less common for people in higher leadership positions to talk about it. But just the, the number of people who would make us feel like we're not educated enough to have a voice in the room or distrust everything we say just because, or if we decide, or if you have a job where if you decide to turn right, everyone from the coalition on turning left is going to come yell at you. But if you decide to turn left, everyone from the coalition on turning right is, and you have to turn or you're going to hit a building, right? And so it just is a, it's a weird, hard space for us to have jobs and to be well in. And so I love that you're naming the ability to hold that and that there are people willing to try anyway, even though someone's going to be mad. That's such a good way to put it too, but everyone's going to be mad. Like I think, and I've, I think I was saying this to you earlier in another conversation we were having, which is started to see like the more angry people are at me probably means the more that like it feels like something is changing, which means doesn't always mean that, but it means that like, maybe what we're doing is effective right? because it depends on who's mad. But I guess, yeah. Yeah. Like it's like, I think about in some ways I'm pursuing my, my, I'm very much a product of my parents, which I never would have said, this is what happens when you get older. You start to realize, oh my God, I am exactly like my parents. I thought I was so different for them. And I spent 20 years trying to define myself as different from them. I don't want your old world cultures and this and that, but I am very much a product of them. And I'm also pursuing my own desires in a very American way. Like my moving to California, I moved far away from my family in my twenties. I needed some space to think. I couldn't really, it was really hard for me because of our culture being one of collectiveness, we also very much are not thought, taught to be individuals. So in other words, your family's desires come before your own. That's antithetical to an American way of thinking, the dominant American way of thinking. So it, that was many second generation people will talk about this incredibly confusing cultural conflict of coming here and or having like parents who are fully formed adults in their belief systems. And then this telling you, you're not American, your choices are, you know, most of my family has had arranged marriages. Most of my family has had follows the path their parents tell them to. And I was like, nope, I want to, I'm not into science and math. And it's not that I'm not into it. It's just like, that doesn't feel like my path. I was attracted to literature, philosophy, art. My first class in my freshman year in college was critical race theory. I didn't know what that was. It was with an African-American professor who really shaped me. That's the reason I went to law school because he was a lawyer and I was learning. I had finally had language to understand my own experience. I didn't have any of that language to understand like what was going on in my like growing up. And I finally had language and suddenly things started to make more sense to me through that lens. And that was like in such and such deep conflict with what my family wanted for me. So I moved to California partially because I come out here in one summer and I saw Berkeley and I was like, 
I can't believe this is in America. Like how it seemed like a place that shouldn't exist and that people shouldn't live in. And I couldn't believe that I could ever live here. And I came out here and I, one of my first jobs was, it's very random, but one of my first jobs was working at a homeless services agency in San Francisco, St. Anthony Foundation with Franciscans. And one, it was a very positive experience because it gave me a very different experience with than I had when I was a kid in Catholic school. I was with Franciscans that really walked with the poor, really, like, truly, I felt like we're so caring and so non-judgmental. It didn't matter what your faith was. It was just really about, like, walking with the poor and supporting people who were in need and not, not asking questions about what they, not asking for some exchange. And, like, that, all of that, like, really, in terms of, like, it helped me see wellness, like, people's ability. And it gave me exposure to other people's lives. Like, what things people, it was a privilege and it was, I would cry every day my first year of work there, but because it was, these stories were so incredibly tragic, but also like see what, what wellness looked like. It looked different for different people. And that meant also sometimes people use substances because they're trying to feel better. And that helped me really understand you can't judge people for that. People have no options sometimes or really poor options. And it really helped me kind of like these, those choices don't mean that you're a certain kind of person. It just means you're trying to feel better. And that's what we're all trying to do. And like that sort of individual, like how do I put the individual in the collective? Like, how do I square that? That's been an ongoing like thing I'm trying to balance, but now I'm trying to see them as the same or like that there isn't, there doesn't need to be a tension there. And now I've actually forgotten the question you've asked me, but the, the thing that I think is shaped, I think really shaped my idea of wellness too, is like the idea that we all, that we all have very different needs. And sometimes like you have to put like the idea of self-care, I think that word really turns me off because women are taught, like women certainly are taught, like don't take care of yourself, like put everything, put everybody else first. My culture really, I'm, I see a generation of women in my mother's generation, they have not taken care of themselves and they are so stressed out and they're so anxious and they're so bored. They don't know how to relax. They don't know how to care for themselves because they feel guilty doing it. And they feel like that's not what you're supposed to do. And I can see them suffering now as older people because they can't have like, they don't have their kids to take care of. And they're just, my mother's really, I think, struggling with how to have purpose. And I, I think that like figuring out how to not feel selfish, how to take care of yourself, that taking care of yourself is taking care of your community. If you're thinking about it in the ways that it makes sense to you, that like those things aren't in conflict with each other. And the, like this concept of I have to, if I'm taking care of myself, I'm not taking care of other people is incorrect. That is how you take care of other people. I appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. Exactly. Yeah, I appreciate all of that because I think that there is a sense that many people have of it's a choice of one or the other, that you can't take care of the community and take care of yourself, or you can't take care of yourself and take care of the community. And maybe that's just a sign of the exhaustion that we all have from the grief we carry from overlapping things that we've been through, whether it's pandemic or in my family, it's the generational trauma of living through the depression. And the number of things that people carry of trying to figure out how can we take care of ourselves and those who matter the most to us, but then also not turn a blind eye to everything that's happening on the whole planet. And so I appreciate some of the ways that you're wrestling through it, but then also tangibly. I definitely have a lot of, I feel guilty when I, I used to feel more guilty, but I've like turned away from watching the news a lot. I used to be such a news junkie. Like I just had the news on 24 hours a day and I love the news actually, because it was more 
wasn't fun, but like politics are now a nightmare. Like all the things that I used to kind of get getting interested in now, it just makes me sad and angry. But so I was like, I think I just need to like, is it okay to shut off from certain like parts to like not know everything that's going on with the wars that are happening right now? Because it feels wrong to turn away from them. And it feels like such a privilege and a luxury to be able to do that. And it's important to understand people's suffering. But at the same time, like I can't, I can only, when I hold that in my body, I can't function very well. And so it's like finding the balance between there's the thing about working in the Tenderloin, which is a neighborhood here in San Francisco that has been historically for decades and decades, maybe longer, a place that marginalized people, immigrants, trans folk, queer folk that have gone because there's some safety there because they weren't accepted in other places. I didn't know the history of the neighborhood when I started working there. That's where it's weird. It's actually the place I've worked the most over the last 15, 20 years in San Francisco. And it is this, I look at it now, when I came to San Francisco, I didn't know anybody. I had not felt like New Jersey or New York. I never felt at home there. The Tenderloin is the place that I feel the most at home in the world. I, I didn't think about it that way until I started spending more time there. It's a place where people are really suffering and there's so much illness and it's really sad, but there's so much community there. There's something like 38 different languages spoken there. And yeah, there are, there's a lot of like things related to the downsides of poverty and but that's not the people who were there. I feel like I felt loved and included in the Tenderloin from the day I started working there more than I'd ever worked anywhere else. There's this, there's a, there used to be a bar on uh, Turk and Taylor and Turk and Taylor's like, at, at least at the time was the place where the most drug arrests in the city are happening. It's still pretty a, a hot spot. And there was a, a bar on that corner called the 21 club and it had been there for 40 years and it was run by this guy named Frank. He didn't own it, but he ran it and he was a, a, a vet who had been, who was from Guam. And I, there's lots of bars around there that I used to go to when I was younger. Aunt Charlie's, I still go to Aunt Charlie's. I love Aunt Charlie's. But I felt more included in this bar where like anybody who was anybody, it's a dive bar, that could sit in that bar. Sometimes it was the person's living room. Some people got their mail there because that was like, you know, living in these SROs, they don't, can't even have anyone in their room. So they come down and this is their community. And you'd go in there and it was like, cheers. Everyone knows your name. I always felt really safe there. The bartender would like, he was really kind. He, he kept the place safe, even though there was so much activity happening that was like intense. But I really, really understand. I was like, why do I, why am I drawn here over and over? There was every kind of person in there. And it closed about five, six years ago because the rent went up and they turned it into some wine bar or something and that closed but i that everybody was really it was a loss for that community and it was only very recently in the last few years that i learned about compton's cafeteria i didn't know about compton's cafeteria i didn't know I, I, i'd heard about it but i didn't really understand the the history of it and i only recently learned that that compton's cafeteria was on that same corner and so then i was just like did i just feel the like love and inclusivity and righteousness of this corner it sounds so can't believe how Northern California have become, but that is like 10 years ago, I would have seen this of me and slapped me, but this is like, I felt so, I was like, this is, this is why I felt so at home here. And I still feel that way. My office is right down the street. I still walk by it all the time. And there is, it's really sad to walk out our door and see people really like, re, it's different than even the drugs that people were using 10 years ago. Cause it's always been there, but it's not worse than the Tenderloin. I just want to say that it's actually there's a community there. It's just that the, peop, the the things that are hurting people are worse. Like fentanyl kills more than 
previous time, but it's actually, it's cleaner, it's safer. There's so many things about it that are better than 20 years ago. It's just it's, people are in more danger. I'm not talking about the people coming in. I'm talking about the people who are the victims of poverty and economic disparity and that have had to turn to these options that they, they're in pain. But but that neighborhood to me symbolizes like just a really beautiful thing about taking care of yourself and taking care of each other. And like, it might not look like a spa. <laughs> it's the opposite of a spa. But yet like, that's where I feel the most love in this city in a lot of ways, which is yeah. a weird thing to say, but that's how I feel. Also back in the day, uh, a little bit earlier than the Compton's Cafeteria stuff, there was a bar on that corner, a different corner, right? You're talking, we're getting all four corners in, but there was a bar called Chuckers. And Chuckers had Jose Saria at it a lot, one of the first people to ever run for elected office as a gay person, and a bunch of sort of feisty drag queens, and then just other people who were very out, which was unusual at the time because it was against the law to be gay. And it was against the law for more than one gay person to be with each other because they would be encouraging a group to do something that was against the law. Also against the law at the time to wear any dress of the opposite sex perceived to be okay, uh, and so they would gather at chuckers and when the police would come to just arrest everyone for being gay they would put out a sign out front that said what time they thought the police would come and raid mm -hmm. and they would say like, tonight at six o'clock our opening entertainment will be that the police are going to come and arrest people and they would do that as public act of they're not afraid and as a way of drawing attention to this really unjust thing that was happening in that neighborhood. And they were that same sort of group of like, we're going to take care of everybody. We it, we're not in control of what the police are going to do at the time. We're not in control of these other circumstances, but we're not going to live in fear and everyone's going to be welcome in this space. And so something's going on in Turk and Taylor where there is some bravery, love, connection going on, but it's very San Francisco to have that culmination of feeling like everyone in the community is welcome in a space, regardless yeah. of how dangerous it is on the sidewalk. Right? Yeah, in 21 Club, it would be like a veteran, a queer person, a trans person, a 21-year-old, me. And it was just everyone like sh sh banging elbows in this little bar and just like sharing stories with each other. It was just, I, I just, I can't say about how weirdly good that felt or maybe it wasn't weird it just felt fascinating to me and I couldn't believe that like I could share a space and everybody was welcome and I had never been in such an inclusive space and that's why I think like wellness is finding a tiny bubble of people or a, a location that is a tiny bubble for you in the midst of whatever the chaos is that swirls around you so when you have a job that is hard then maybe you try to counter that with a home life that is easier. And maybe some of, maybe your home life gets hard for all the reasons things get hard. And you try to counter that with a friend group that gives you some peace from that. You try to have these different buckets. Maybe it's like a yoga class. That's not, I wish that was me, but like, or maybe it's a like aisle in the supermarket that makes you happy or a place that serves that dish that can really just like turn it back around. And I think we just need to like collecting those little bubble wrapped spaces of wellness that are just a little bit better that even if it's like a thing I thought I was bad at, but I'm going to try it anyway. Like I've, I am 43 years old and I have known how to ride bikes my whole life, but that does not mean <laughs> I know how to ride a bike in San Francisco because it's a whole different planet, but I'm learning. I've been learning over the last couple of months. How can I ride my bike to work? Oh my goodness. That's a Don't great. Don't do it every day. 
but it's like a learning, it's a different kind of learning curve because number one hills of San Francisco and like being stupid at something that is, that are, there's a whole different culture and a whole different language for in a big town than if you're riding somewhere flat and in the country. And so it's like just being brave enough to like try a new thing or get a new group of people or like the people who are like, yeah, we're all waiting at the light together as we leave Golden Gate Park's JFK because it's our street now. Like, care what anyone's job is or what their political opinions are, but we're in it together. Right? It's funny that you say that during the pandemic, I've always been terrified to ride a bike because I'm very klutzy. I loved riding a bike as a kid, but that was like when I could like ride around my neighborhood and I wasn't going to get run over. And I'm very clumsy and the hills and all that. I'm, I'm, my husband rides a bike pretty regularly and... Like I, during the pandemic, it was like, can we do some stuff together? Why don't we try e-biking to the beach? Like I live in the Castro, e-bike to the beach. I was like, that seems crazy. But then I was like, oh, it's totally doable. There was no cars on the street. And there weren't a lot of people who were like, get out of my way. Because <laughs> you can, I can get in people, bikers way. And they're just like, ah, get out of the, and I can cause all sorts of accidents. But I was just able to do it more because like no one was really watching and like people were People also were more forgiving <laughs> of, of, so I started to really like it. And then when there was more traffic, I was like, I probably need to just stay in the park and not be on the street. So I think it's really brave that you're driving to work or biking to work. But like, it did give me like, it's true, like trying things that I always thought were like, not for me, or I'm going to embarrass myself and being surprisingly enjoying them. Also the e-bike thing makes it a lot easier with the hills. Still a lot of work. Those lift bikes are so heavy. It's ridiculous. And when I looked into what an e-bike actually costs, I was like, okay, they're a little expensive. But it was, it was funny. It was something my husband and I, and we got to go to the beach. And I was like, I can't believe, I felt like this is the pandemic and we get to go to the beach. Like it, it just seemed like unreal. And it was very healing. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my conversations with Cynthia. If you enjoyed this one, there are a total of three of these conversations and you can check them out here or on any podcasting space or YouTube or Facebook or any of those places. If you appreciate conversations like these, I hope you will uh, consider liking, subscribing, leaving nice reviews and all of those things that people do when they appreciate content that they're essentially consuming for free. If you'd like to kick in and help make sure that conversations like this can continue to happen in the future, I invite you to be a part of my Patreon team. And if you're not able, that's okay too, because honestly, it's a part of my wellness to continue to put out things that are supportive for people like you. I appreciate that you have checked in. and I hope that you'll check in again. Until then, take care. Everyone.